0: Every sermon I have preached this week, we started out with, I want to speak to you this morning on the subject, the heart of a missionary, and every message I've preached this week, we started out with this statement, so I want to continue. God is on a mission to reveal his glory and extend his grace to every kindred, tribe, and tongue. I hope you'll memorize that statement, because it summarizes the work of God from the beginning of time to the end of time when we stand with him at the throne with every kindred, tribe, and tongue. This is the work God is accomplishing in this world. If that is true, then we are to be on mission with God, correct? So in that sense of the word, all of us are missionaries. So my title this morning, The Heart of a Missionary, I don't want you to think I'm talking about the Gerbers and the Grasties and, and others that you support. I'm talking about all of you. We are all missionaries. We're not missionaries in the sense that we're all going to go across the ocean and labor in a foreign land, but we are on mission with God, every single one of us. If that's true, then we have to consider the task before us. And as we laid it out on Friday night, we have over 7,000 unreached people groups that still have no access to the gospel. We have over 3,700 languages that still have no scripture. And if God is on a mission and I'm supposed to be on mission with him, then my question is, how could I personally make a difference in that immense and, and great need? What is my part? Uh, we see the enormity of the task and we see the weight of Jesus' commission, the great commission, and we feel that, how do we respond to that? What kind of perspective do we have on that assignment? Now I want you to, I want you to stay with me this morning because I, I believe I really can give you some practical, uh, I'll give you some practical thoughts that help define your part in that assignment. But, but what kind of, how do we see ourselves? First of all, how do we see ourselves in relation to this big job? How do we see the people we're commanded to reach? And then how do we see the message we're commanded to carry? I believe the story we're going to read this morning, a very familiar one, but I believe found in this story this morning are three characteristics of Peter and John that define our role in the mission of God. Very simple thoughts. But this story defines what you're to do next in the mission of God. Would you read these verses with me, please? Follow along as I read aloud. Acts 3 and verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour, and a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. I want to give you three characteristics we find here about Peter and John and and continuing in this story as it goes through chapter actually four and on into chapter five, uh, the follow-up to the story but three qualities or characteristics that define our role in the mission of God. Are you ready for them? Number one is compassion for people. Now, please uh, don't turn me off right here because I've been in church all my life and I've heard a lot of messages on compassion. I've heard a lot of messages on having a burden for souls. How many of you ever heard a preacher get up and preach about having a burden for souls and how you ought to care about the lost and you ought to weep for the lost and you leave the church thinking, you know, sometimes I really care and sometimes I don't really care. You leave the church kind of feeling guilty like, man, I, I know I need, a, I need a greater burden for the lost. I'm just, I'm no good, man. I'm just not what I should be. I mean, leave a service sometimes feeling worse than you did when you came in. And I'm not talking about just conviction. Sometimes we do leave feeling worse because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But I'm not going to put you on a guilt trip this morning to have a burden for souls. I am at the end of point one. I'm going to give you the secret to having compassion for people. I really will. Okay, so stay with me. There is a huge contrast between Acts chapter two and Acts chapter three. At the end of Acts chapter two, we have had three thousand people saved and baptized and added to the church. Peter's sermon at Pentecost resulted in that, that, that amazing number of people becoming part of the church. There is a, a seismic shift from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 3. Pentecost was a one-time event, and wouldn't you like to see mass numbers of people come to Christ all the time? Wouldn't you like to see everybody that's lost in Berkshire County, is that how you say it? Berkshire. Uh, everybody that's lost in Berkshire County all get saved today? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? wouldn't you like to see everybody lost in the state of Massachusetts get saved over the next two months? Man, I would love to see mass numbers of people coming to Christ, but the the examples of mass successful evangelism are very few (coughs) and far between. (coughs) Pardon me. Far between. You can go back to the 1700s in America and the Great Awakening, which was focused on a lot of this region where you live right now. And, and it is estimated that 10% of the American population came to Christ during the Great Awakening. And then you get into the 1800s, you have the Second Great Awakening and, uh, and large numbers of people coming to Christ. You could go to 1900, 1904-ish with the Welsh revival in the United Kingdom and, and a mass numbers of people coming to Christ. But you'd have to go back through history, and you could point at just different spots where we saw great movements for for the cause of Christ. The majority of people that come to Christ are reached one at a time. And so we have this seismic shift from Acts 2 with 3,000 people getting saved. Listen to it now. We're shifting to the scene of Peter and John encountering one man who needs help from the Lord one person. Jesus is the one who set the example for us of reaching individuals. Uh, Jesus could have reached crowds. How many believe Jesus could have been the most successful evangelist of all time? He could have been the greatest megachurch builder that this world has ever known. But Jesus focused on individuals. He trained his apostles to focus on individuals because one day they were walking along Um, Well, let me back up to John 6. John 6, we have the feeding of the 5,000. And after they were fed, they went away. They came back the next day. And had Jesus been a megachurch pastor, he would have welcomed them all in with loving words and kind expressions. I'm so glad you joined us for our worship service again today. But instead, Jesus said, you're not here for me. You're here because I fed you yesterday. And that's all you care about. That's basically what he said to them, isn't it? And the longer he talked, uh, the more of them left. And by the time he was finished with his message that day, there was nobody left of the apostles. And then he looked at the apostles and said, will you also go away? And why in the world did Jesus do that? Why in the world didn't Jesus bring that mass crowd to himself? Because he was trying to make a a a lasting eternal difference in the lives of individuals who were willing to commit their lives to him. Jesus was never interested in mass crowds of casual observers. He was always interested in the smaller crowds that were willing to hear and heed his voice. So the apostles were shocked one day when Jesus stopped and interrupted his great work of ministry for one blind beggar. Now, you can read the story. It's in John chapter nine. But (coughs) Jesus is walking along again with a big crowd around him. And they're all seeking something from the Lord, healing or or some act of kindness. And there's a voice over on the side of the road here that says, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And I don't know who it was. I think it was probably Peter. But I think Peter walked over to the man and said, excuse me, would you be quiet? We're trying to help people over here. Do you see the irony in that statement? You stop talking and stop getting his, trying to get his attention because he's busy helping people. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Jesus stopped and said, who's that? Bring that man to me. And he ministered to that one blind man. He stopped his journey on the way to heal the centurion's daughter and, and he stopped his journey because a woman touched the hem of his garment. And he said, who touched me? And he ministered and healed that woman. He stopped on his way on another journey, and he looked up in a tree. And he said, Zacchaeus, I'm going to go to your house today. And he reached that one individual. He, told, or he went to the well at Samaria, and he ministered to one Samaritan woman. He walked through the cemetery at Gadara, and he reached one demoniac. He ignored his own suffering. Here's a good one for you. He ignored his own suffering while he hung on the cross. To answer the prayer of one thief who was repentant. The Bible says there's rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. The great lesson for us in this passage of scripture is that the masses can be reached one soul at a time. One soul at a time. I want you to notice a couple of things here in verse 4. I want you to notice what it says in the first part of verse 4. It says, and Peter fastening... Peter uh, fastening his eyes upon him with John. I want you to notice, first of all, that Peter looked at the man. He looked at the lame man. Having just come from Pentecost, would you, would you agree with me if I tell you this? Having just come from Pentecost, he could have very easily developed this celebrity evangelist mentality. He could have thought, you know, I'm a big preacher now, and, and I, I minister to big crowds, and I don't have time for one individual here, but he stopped and looked. And there was a purposeful look here. He could have said to John, uh, why don't you just throw him one of our prayer hankies uh, and, 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 and maybe that'll be good for him. Listen to this statement. He could have walked on by because hundreds of Christian worshipers walked by this man every single day. But he stopped and looked. And here's a principle I want you to hear. Those who claim to be the most passionate about reaching the multitudes should also be the most conscious about reaching the one. This is a rebuke to all of us, isn't it? Because we talk about reaching the masses, we talk about the unreached people groups, and we we want to have a burden for them, we should have a burden for them, but we walk by people every day who need Jesus. And God brings people to us who need Jesus. John 4.35 says, lift up your eyes and what? Look, look. Do we look at them? I was sitting at a restaurant in downtown Indianapolis. <clears throat> this was four or five years ago now. And on, I, I, I don't remember exactly, but let's say this was a Tuesday and I'm sitting at Dick's Bodacious Barbecue. And I know it's dangerous to talk about stuff like that right before lunch. Uh, but I was sitting at Dick's Bodacious Barbecue. We're sitting on the sidewalk. They had, a, they had an outdoor seating area and it's downtown Indianapolis, one block off of the circle. They don't call it a square, it's a circle. And a homeless man walks by our seating area there, and just a few feet over there to the corner where the intersection is, he he leaned over and was rifling through a trash can. And the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart, and, and I don't always do this. I've helped people before, but I, there have been many, many people that I see. Same with you. You see homeless people all the time. You don't help them all. But for some reason, the Lord said, go, go help that man. I got up walked over to him. <clears throat> And, and I said, sir, are you hungry? He said, I sure am. I said, if you come over here and I'll buy you a meal. He came and sat down with us, and here's, here's the, what's going to happen. This is on Tuesday. On Wednesday, I'm headed to China with one of our associates who is going to launch the Pamiri project with our ministry, and we're targeting eight languages that don't have even a written language, don't have anything written in their language, so they have no scripture, obviously. And the Holy Spirit said to me, Tomorrow you're going to get on a plane and go to the other side of the world to try to talk about or try to learn about reaching a people group never met. You don't know any of them. You don't know who they are, where they live. You really don't know much about their lives and you claim to care about them on the other side of the world, but there's somebody right in front of you right now. Will you be bold enough and honest enough to speak up for me right now with the person I just put in front of you? eyewitness of the man, and it turns out he had made a profession of faith as a young person, and he, uh, had, has, his life had taken some very unfortunate turns. But here's the point of the matter. We, we cannot claim to care about the other side of the world and give our money to reach the other side of the world and never speak up for Christ when he puts a person in front of us who needs Jesus. Notice what else it says in verse 4 right here. Not only does it say Peter and John looked at the man, but they said, Look on us look on us. The word look in this verse right here is the same word that you find in, in, um, in Acts chapter uh, seven, at the very end of the chapter where Stephen is being stoned. And the Bible says he looked up, and saw Jesus at the right hand of God. And I don't believe that was a passing glance. I believe that was an intense gaze. Don't you? And that's what Peter said to this man right here. Look up here. I need your attention. I want you to look at me. Well, the Bible says there in verse five, he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive some of them. And I, I believe when Peter said, look, at, look up here, I believe he held his cup up a little higher, hoping to get an extra shekel, maybe. And then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. So what was Peter saying when he said, look on us? Here's what he was saying. We want to help. We want to help. You know, sympathy says, I see your pain. Empathy says, I feel your pain. Compassion says, I want to do something about your pain. And we need compassion. Do we see people? Are we willing to look at people and see their real heart's condition, their spiritual condition? Now, I'm sure you do in this area, as, I, as you do anywhere, we see people that, Really, we don't want to be judgmental, but one look at a person sometimes, you can tell what their values are, and they're not biblical values. They're not even moral values in any shape or form, and we think, well, that person probably can't get saved. They probably won't get saved. They probably wouldn't want to hear anything I have to say. But have you ever taken the time to look at them and think about their soul's condition, irrespective of what the outside looks like? And have you ever stopped long enough to reach out to that person who may, by the expression of everything you see on the outside, may be desperately crying out for meaning in life, may be desperately crying out for a relationship with God. They are a needy soul. But we've never taken the time to look past what's on the outside and let God use us to minister to the inside. I fear sometimes we are very far from having the heart God has, not just for the world out there, but for the world right in front of us, right in front of us. They were not only saying we want to help, but you know what else Peter was saying? We can help. He said, I'm not going to give you any money, but I do have something to help you with. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I was in Kathmandu, Nepal, in a region called Boda, or the Bodanath area. And there's a stupa there, which is a Buddhist idol. It's the second largest Buddhist idol in the world. When you walk into that region, you can feel the spiritual oppression. It's so thick in the air. And I remember the first time I walked in there, I'm being very transparent, but the first time I walked into that area, I thought, what in the world could be done to help these people? They are they are gathering here at 5.30 every morning to worship for an hour or two or three or four. They're prostrating themselves. They're spinning prayer wheels. They're burning incense on altars. They're doing all kinds of stuff in the name of worship and in the name of praying. They're reciting mantras to their gods that don't exist they are so spiritually blind what in the world could we do to reach these people and all of a sudden it dawned on me i have the answer i have the gospel of jesus christ and you see somebody in your neighborhood or see somebody where you work or see somebody on the street or in the grocery store, and you think, what in the world could I do? How in the world could I get through to this person who I, probably, I, I think probably doesn't even want to hear what I have to say? How could I get through to this person? You need to remind yourself, and I need to remind myself, that we have the answer for their soul. It's Jesus Christ. I was in a convenience store just a few months ago, young man behind the counter I was the only one in the store at the time and he just started chatting with me we talked for a few minutes I said goodbye and I walked out the door and the Holy Spirit said you need to give him one of the books you have in the car you know the book done by Carrie Schmidt I I grabbed one of those books and I give them out like gospel tracks I guess when the Holy Spirit uh, speaks to me about it but I tried to I, I walked back in the store and I laid it on the counter and I said I'd like to give you a book to read he said what's that And I said, this book talks about the two ways people try to get to heaven. Some people try to get get to heaven by doing everything they can to earn their way. And that won't get you to heaven. I said, the right way to get to heaven is by trusting in what Jesus Christ has done. Hence the title of this book. Would you please read this book? He looked at the book and he stepped back and he said, are you kidding me? I said, no, I'm not. He said, my girlfriend for the last seven or eight months has been talking to me about this. Maybe I should read this. You know, if you just take the time to let the spirit of God speak and respond to that, you never know who you're going to talk to. You never know in their heart. So we are right to care about the world. But talking about the world and its need is not a virtue that allows us to ignore the ones God puts right in front of us. Now, I told you I was going to give you the secret. I'm not going to guilt trip you. I'm going to give you the secret to have compassion for people. Are you ready for it? Before I give it to you, I want to tell you where I'm coming from with that. <coughs> sometimes I really care. Sometimes I can weep. And sometimes I don't care so much. And don't have to nod your head, but I think, I think you're where I am. Let me, let me be a little more transparent. My favorite T-shirt, somebody bought it for me last Christmas. It says, I like coffee and maybe three people. And that, that's a whole lot closer to the truth than I'd like to admit, right? And then I read this a while back, and it, and, and it resonated with me also. It says, before coffee in the morning, I don't like people. After coffee, I feel good about not liking people. <laughs> <clears throat> so that's where I'm coming from. But, but you know, I'm still learning this, and you know what I, you know what I learned? I came across a while back. Compassion for people doesn't come from spending time with people. It comes from spending time with God. You can't get close to God and not love people. You can get close to people and not love people. My pastor has a famous saying. He says it all the time in private conversation, not in the pulpit. But he says, you know, he wears me out. Speaking of some individual. It's hard. It's easy. I should say it's easy to to tire and be weary of people's needs and problems and the constant pull that that can be sometimes, but you cannot be close to God and not care what he cares about. We could, we could manufacture emotion this morning with sad pictures and heartbreaking stories and, and th- I'm thankful for the stories Brother Gerber shared this morning, aren't you? But if we stayed up here long enough and he showed you enough pictures, bring you to tears, right? But it's not about emotionalism, it's about a heart for God It's not about emotionalism for people. It's about a heart for God and letting him put his heart in you so you'll care about what he cares about. You know what I believe? I believe the closer you get to God, the closer you get to God, pretty soon you want what he wants more than you want what you want. And the closer you get to God, you encounter these people that we look at the outside and we think they, they wouldn't want to hear anything I have to say. But God loves that person, and you know God wants that person, and you care much about God, so you're willing to speak up for God. That's what compassion for people is. It's closeness to God. So what do I need to do? I need to pursue God with all my heart. I believe the number one pursuit of every believer is a close, intimate fellowship and relationship with God. Paul said that I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings and, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, we should be pleading with God to give us his heart. Compassion for people. Number two, and these next two points are, will be brief. Confidence in the name of Jesus. If you'll read through, I won't read through these verses this morning, but the references I have on the screen there, you'll find out that the, this created quite a stir when this man was healed. And the authorities came to Peter and John and they said, By what power have you done this? And Peter was very quick to say, By the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. That's found in chapter 3 a couple of times. It's found in chapter 4, verses 7 and 10. Chapter 4, verses 12, 18, 27. They were committed to stop preaching in this name because they saw the power that it had. It was the name of Jesus that caused the most hardened hearts to repent. It was the name of Jesus that caused demons to flee. It was the name of Jesus for which people hazarded their lives. And I want you to know this morning that 2,000 years ago, the power of his name that, that caused the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the dead to be raised, lepers to be cleansed, and demons to run off the cliff, the power of that name has not been diminished one iota. And our... Limited perspective on reaching the world is only limited by our unwillingness to reach out in the powerful name of Jesus. You know, it was a great day for me when I realized that all I really need to do is boldly talk about Jesus and He does the rest. It was a great day for me when I recognized I don't have to win people to Jesus. I was trained in an atmosphere in in Bible college, I was trained in an atmosphere, where if you didn't have 14 people pray the sinner's prayer so you could record that you led 14 people to Jesus that day, you weren't much of a soul winner. I don't have to win anybody. I just have to be courageous enough to talk about Jesus. And he's the one who draws them to himself. It's the power of his name and the power of his gospel that can apprehend the hardest of hearts, those farthest away from him, the idolaters, the Buddhists, the Hindus, the Muslims, and the God-haters. His name is powerful. Just talk about Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. The king of kings is he, the Lord of lords supreme throughout eternity. The great I am, the way, the truth, the life, the door. Let's talk about Jesus more and more. And this is where most of us come to a crisis. I'm afraid to speak to this person. I I don't think they'll receive me. They don't need to receive you. They need Jesus. Jesus. So if there's power in that name, use it. I'm not talking about like some magic wand. I'm just talking about the story of Jesus and his saving gospel. It can transform people's lives. Number three, compassion for people, confidence in the name of Jesus, and number three, commitment to the mission. Again, I want you to see this statement. God is on a mission to reveal his glory and extend his grace to every kindred, tribe, and tongue. Peter and John could have easily... In the ensuing verses of chapter 3 and on into chapter 4 and 5, we find that the authorities apprehended them and said, we command you not to speak or teach any more in in this name. And Peter responded with, we cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And then they arrested them again sometime later, and they beat them and commanded them not to teach any more in the name of Jesus. And you know what they said? They went to prayer and said, God, give your servants boldness. That with all uh, courage, that with all boldness, we may speak and preach your name. They could have retreated. I think Peter could have said to John, "You know, it's pretty hot right now. Let's just let's just back off a little bit. Uh, let's wait till this fervor dies down over this particular situation, and 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 we can kind of approach this from a different angle. Maybe maybe a, a little more a softer method, perhaps. But what we have with Peter and John in the ensuing verses here, and what we have all the way through the book of Acts, is a people committed to the nations, committed to the mission rather, telling people, telling the nations about Jesus. In Acts 5, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for him. In Acts 7, we have the first Christian martyr, Stephen. In Acts 8, they were scattered because of persecution and they kept preaching. In Acts 11, we have the base of ministry established at Antioch, and in Acts 13, we have the first missionaries sent out. In Acts 14 and following, we have churches established all over Asia Minor. We have a picture of a people committed to the mission. Can I give you a present-day challenge? We are not living right here, right now. We are not living in a God-favorable environment, are we? I'm not a, I'm not a gloom and doom kind of guy, but it's not going to get better. We are not headed in a positive direction. Our nation is becoming more and more anti-God, and not only are we, we've been anti-God for, for 40 or 50 years now, but now we're coming so vocifically vo, vo, uh, 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 vocal about God, and, and it's, it's getting ugly. And it's gonna get ugly in America. Are you committed to the mission? I've heard this statement several times lately. You know, it's looking really bad in America. Jesus must be coming soon. I think Jesus could come back tonight, don't you? But why does he have to come back and deliver America? It's been ugly for 2,000 years. It's been ugly in India for, for centuries. Why does he have to save us from suffering? John Piper said, suffering is not a byproduct of the advance of the gospel. Suffering is God's means of advancing the gospel. And it's going to get ugly in America, and we better decide right now that we won't retreat and lay low, but we will boldly stand and speak up for Jesus Christ. Here's my closing statement. Are you ready for it? May God give us enough of his compassion and enough confidence in his name and enough commitment to the mission that he can trust me enough to put somebody right in front of me and I'll speak up for him. May God give me enough of his compassion, enough confidence in his name, and enough commitment to his mission that he can trust me enough to put someone in front of me who needs Jesus and I'll speak up for him. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we ask you to answer these prayers in our heart right now. Would you give us your compassion? We need your compassion. Our compassion will fail. The the passions of our heart are going to be weak, but the passion of your heart is never weak. It never fails. And Lord, we need your compassion. Lord, we need confidence in your name. Your name changed us. Your name changed our eternal destiny from hell to heaven. And your name can change the destiny of any lost soul that crosses our path. And Lord, we need commitment to your mission. We need to be bold enough and courageous enough as Peter and John prayed. grant thy servants boldness to preach in your name. May we be bold enough to talk about you, We don't have to feel the burden of bringing people to salvation. We just must feel the commitment of bringing the gospel to people. May it be true of us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Would you stand, please? The instrumentalists are going to begin to play. If God has spoken to your heart this morning, maybe you'll find a place at this altar. Just would you make those three prayers a prayer of your heart this morning? Compassion, God's compassion. Confidence in his name and commitment to his mother. That defines your role this morning. Do you wanna fill it? Do you wanna do you wanna you wanna carry out your role? That's what it is. Would you please obey the Lord this morning while the music plays? Would you obey the Lord in your heart?